Well, good morning. How are you guys doing? Good. Awesome. I like that. Some people are, are awake. Um, my name is, uh, well, I mean, I'm, I'm facing, my, my back is to you. My name is uh, Marco. I'm the, I'm the preaching and teaching pastor here at uh, Storehouse Community Church. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. I hope you got some good coffee in your hands. I hope you've had a good Thanksgiving uh, uh, break, enjoyed some turkey. You are the few uh, the proud, the faithful, right? After uh, the, the amount of eating, I'm sure everyone's done, right? Um, to an extent, everybody dives into it. Um, man, for us, like our, our community group on Friday, we, we oven roasted a, a uh, what is it? A bacon wrapped turkey. That was amazing. Yes. Amen, Jonah. Um, and so that was really cool. But nevertheless, hope y'all's uh, Thanksgiving week was, was filled with uh, some cool laughs uh, and time spent with loved ones. Uh, we're gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna ramble a little bit, but uh, we're gonna find our, ourselves in Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2, uh, and we're gonna spend a little bit of time in there, uh, and then the rest of our time is going to be in Luke chapter 4. Now, while you're, you're turning to all that, uh, man, if you're new We'd love to hang out with you. We'd love to connect. Please fill out one of the connect cards, drop them in the offering baskets and, or, or take it to the connect area in the back and, and we'll, we'll get with you. But in addition to that, if you don't have a Bible, um, that is our gift to you. There should be some on the rows, if not also in the back connect area. Please take one uh, with you. Again, that is totally for you. Now, while you're still searching for Isaiah and then bookmarking Luke 4, I'll, I'll continue to talk a little bit. Last week, we finished our series on the book of Philippians. We had started a series back in May and then finished it last week titled Citizens. Uh, and it was a letter by the Apostle Paul written to the church in Philippi. And, and we were parked there for several months. Uh, and so we finished our time in that letter, in that series last week. And it was a wonderful series. Uh, it was a wonderful letter to walk through and preach through. I hope you guys uh, enjoyed it. I hope that you were both challenged and convicted by the Spirit. Um, as he spoke through the Apostle Paul and ultimately revealed himself through his word. Um, it, was, it was a really, really good uh, series. Uh, today, we're starting a new series. We're starting a six-week series titled Glory, the Person and Work of Jesus. And so over the next six weeks, we're going to walk through uh, essentially the, the person and work of Jesus. That's, that's what it's all about. We're going to talk about not only who he is, but what he has accomplished and what he is doing. And uh, and. And as I think about this uh, out loud a little bit, this wasn't necessarily intended, and maybe it still isn't intended to be an Advent type of series, but it seems to be kind of flowing with that time. So we're going to kind of run with it. If you want to call it that, that's fine. If not, that's cool too. Uh, we just thought this would be uh, something that we could focus in on to make much of our King. And so we're going to be here for the next six weeks into the new year. We'll start in 1 Peter. Uh, so I'm really stoked about that, but we'll talk more about that later on. Here's what I want to do. I want to uh, read Isaiah 61, 1 through 2. I'm only going to talk a little bit about what Isaiah is, uh, is writing about here, and then immediately I'm just going to jump into Luke 4. So I'll read this, I'll pray, and then we'll dive into our time. So this is what Isaiah writes. The Spirit of the Lord, here, let me open this up. That's, that'd be better instead of reading it from my 
my thing here. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Verse 2, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. Join me, join me in prayer. God, as we dive into your word, Lord, I pray that this, this room, uh, these people, brothers and sisters and guests would be filled with the power and presence of your Holy Spirit. I pray that you would make yourself known to us as we walk through your word. I pray that you would challenge us, that you would convict us, but that you would also comfort us in light of the truth of your word. I pray that I would be set aside and that Spirit, Holy Spirit, you would just take over. That you would stir the affections of, of, uh, of people's hearts for Jesus and that you would make much of his work in our lives this morning. God, we love you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. All right, here we go. What I want to talk about when it comes to Isaiah, what I want to talk about when it comes to Isaiah is I want to give you a little bit of context, and then I want to dive in, not necessarily break down, but I want to dive into what he is saying. And so in the context of Isaiah 61, and really in the context of the book of Isaiah, the prophet has been chosen by God, essentially, to go and preach repentance to God's people. The idea behind this is that he is preaching to God's people to repent of their sin and to return to who and what they know to be good, and that is God himself. And in this section of, of chapter 61, in this section, what we see is Isaiah is writing about an anointed one that is coming. In the midst of him uh, preaching and proclaiming repentance, which, by the way, is a constant reminder in the Old Testament to God's people. There's always this historical background of who God is, what God has done, and in light of that, he is calling his people to return to him. The, uh, the prophet is saying that there is an anointed one who is coming. There is one who is coming that will be sent, who is anointed, and is filled with the Holy Spirit. And tragically, as he is proclaiming this message, it is falling on deaf ears. Because at the end of Isaiah, ultimately what we see is that God's people are not only sent into exile, but they are conquered. And so Isaiah is preaching this message to them, and he is reminding them or telling them about the prophecy of an anointed one that is coming. And he goes on to say that this person doesn't reveal that it is Jesus, but we'll talk about that in just a minute. And it reveals, or he writes, that this person is going to bring good news to the poor, that this person is going to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. I'll talk about that in just a minute. Essentially, what he is saying is that there is one who is coming who is going to get his hands dirty, who is going to get his hands dirty and who is going to restore all things. 
That is his job. He will come to proclaim and to restore. And when he writes to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, what he is referring to are God's promises being fulfilled. So he's saying there is one who is coming, who's going to get dirty, who is going to proclaim good news, who is going to uh, restore all things, who's going to get dirty with his hands, restore all things. And in addition to that, he is going to fulfill God's promises towards his people. And in the midst of Isaiah proclaiming this and proclaiming repentance, it is falling on deaf ears. It is falling on deaf ears years, and eventually they are conquered. You fast forward about a little more than 500 years, and Jesus is born. And we'll talk more about that later, but Jesus is born. Jesus is born, and he grows up in wisdom and in stature. That's what uh, the Gospel of Luke says. And then he is compelled by the Holy Spirit uh, to go into the wilderness and to be tempted. And as he is tempted in the wilderness, he does not fail. He is tempted with the same lies that Adam and Eve were tempted with. But unlike Adam and Eve who failed in the garden, he doesn't. And he comes out of the wilderness and he preaches his first sermon. And Luke 4 records that. Luke 4 records that. So so now we're going to turn over to that section. Beginning in verse 16. And he writes, And he, that is Jesus, and he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now check it. Verse 20, and he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Check it. This is what he does. He comes out of the wilderness. He goes into the synagogue. They hand him the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. What we just read in Isaiah 61, Jesus quotes, Jesus quotes his exposition, his sermon, his sermon prep, his big crescendo in this was, that's me. Today, these promises will be fulfilled because that's me. That I am the one who is filled with the Holy Spirit, that I am the one who is anointed, and that I am the one who has been sent. What a baller move. I don't care who you are. That's baller. You know? Walks into the synagogue, opens it up, and he says, that which you just read is about me. And so you, we'll, we'll talk more about their response later in our time today, but you, you can't help but notice further on in the verses that they kind of trip out, that they're listening to him, that he's gracious with his words, and he says, that's uh, this, this part of Isaiah, he's talking about me. You can't help but think about their response. 
Wait, what? And so, in light of this, we need to answer a couple of questions in order to make much of what Jesus is ultimately preaching about here. We need to answer the question of, well, who is Jesus? In light of what uh, he quotes from Isaiah, we need to look at what Jesus will ultimately accomplish. And then we need to ask, well, why does this matter? Why does this matter? And so before diving a little bit more specific into the text of Luke 4, before diving a little bit more specific into the text of Luke 4, I want to make a couple of things clear when it comes to the person of Jesus. That Jesus is the second member of the Trinity. See, here at Storehouse, we believe in the doctrine of the Holy Trinity. That is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We believe that God eternally exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's three persons distinct in their role and function, existing, however, as one. Existing as one. One direction, one truth, one message, one God. Further, as we dive into what Jesus quotes from Isaiah, we see three things. When in light of the question of who is Jesus, we see three things. The first one is that Jesus is filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, all of these things are not only going to confirm that Jesus is the anointed one, but it should also bring encouragement to you should you belong to Jesus. So number one, Jesus is filled with the Holy Spirit. That is, that the same Holy Spirit that dwells in the life of the believer empowered Jesus in his ministry. This is confirmed in Acts chapter 10, verse 38. And Luke writes, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit. In addition to that, though Jesus was fully God and fully man, he depended on the Holy Spirit. And if there's anything you can walk away with concerning the work, the person and work of the Holy Spirit, it's that he does not speak or teach apart from Scripture. If you want to hear from God, open your Bible. Number two, Jesus is anointed. He says, I'm I'm the anointed one. Another way of looking at this is that Jesus was set apart, chosen by the Father to do the will of the Father. The coming of Christ was always plan A. It was never plan B. It was never something that was a second thought. From the beginning, Jesus, as the one who has been set apart and chosen to be sent by the Father, was always a part of plan A. We see this back in Genesis 3. Beginning in verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, this is after Adam and Eve have sinned, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, uh, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Here it is. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. You could underline that or circle it. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. In that, in this section of Genesis 3, verses 14 and 15, by many nerdy theologians, it's referred to as the Proto-Evangelion, 
the first gospel where God is telling them, I am sending someone. Someone is coming to restore what you have distorted and he will come through the offspring or the seed of the woman. He is coming. A redeemer is being uh, sent. Jesus, as the anointed one, the one who's been chosen and set apart, was from the beginning. Plan A. And finally, number three, that Jesus is sent. The Gospel of John records that God set aside his deity and he entered into human history as the man, Jesus Christ, and, quote, dwelled among his people. That doesn't mean that he came and wrote cool books and had like really cool piffy sayings and cool clever hashtags and was just a good person. That he came and got dirty and dwelled among his people. Among his creation. And in doing so, also in the Gospel of John, he says over 20 times that he has been sent to do the will of the Father. If you listen to John 6.38 as an example, he says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 17.4, as he is praying to the Father, he says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Over and over again, Jesus proclaims and says that he has been sent. And in addition to that, as he reads or quotes Isaiah, we see that on his life, or excuse me, in his life on earth, he fulfills these promises. Which begs us to the next question. So then what does Jesus do? Got it. Man, he quoted Isaiah. Great. We can see how he has not only been filled with the Holy Spirit. We see that he's not only been anointed. We see that he's not only sent. But what does he do? Like, what does he accomplish? And we're going to look at two things in light of him quoting Isaiah. We're going to look at him proclaiming, and we're going to look at him restoring. This is where I think it starts to get a little personal. And so the first thing is that Jesus came to bring good news to the poor. He is proclaiming good news to the poor. How does he do it? During his time on on earth, he preaches the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is God doing his will. The follow-up is, and what is God doing his will? It is him calling sinners to repentance. It is him calling sinners to repentance. And so it says that he brings good news to the poor. When we're talking about the poor, we're not only talking about those who are economically in poverty. We are also talking about those who are poor in spirit. That's what he says in Matthew. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for they will inherit the kingdom of God. Those who are poor in spirit are those who are spiritually bankrupt. Those who are just empty and in need. He is not calling the self-righteous. He is not calling the morally satisfied. He is calling those that are broken before God. Izzy prayed about this earlier during uh, the, the worship set. That in order to be in the presence of God, we must be broken in light of our sin so that we would come before him. 
that if we are going to be restored, that if we are going to be renewed, we must come before him broken. The one who doesn't come before him broken is not who he came for. And so when he says that he has come to bring good news to the poor, when we're talking about, man, poor in terms of uh, poverty, that might be you. The, the next question would be, man, are you poor in spirit? Are you poor in spirit? Are you broken before God? The next thing that he does is that he restores. Here's, here's one thing I want to make clear. That the primary focus of Jesus' mission was to reconcile sinners to God. The primary reason of his mission was to reconcile sinners to God, to restore and to remove the fence of separation between man and God. What Adam and Eve distorted, Jesus is restoring. What Adam and Eve distorted, Jesus is restoring. And if we go back up to Luke 4, if we go back up to Luke 4, he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. I want to talk about that. The word for liberty, you would say, like, well, it means freedom. Right, it does. We're all smart. Proclaiming liberty to the captives suggests it's language that is used. It's language that suggests that those who are enslaved and in bondage to their sin, the word liberty is tied to the forgiveness of sins. It is consistent uh, in Luke and in Acts. So when he says that he came proclaiming liberty to those who are in captivity, he is talking about the forgiveness of sins. You see, apart from God, apart from the saving work of Jesus, we are in bondage, we are enslaved to our sin. We are enslaved to our sin, and it takes the grace of God to break those chains so that not only we would be made new, but so that we would not be slaves to unrighteousness, but slaves to righteousness. Liberty refers to the forgiveness of sins. He continues, liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. When he's talking about restoring sight to the blind, this is, this is language. Not only is it literal, because we see Jesus heal, and we're going to talk about that in this series, but it's also language that is used for salvation. That once we were blind, and now we can see as a result of an encounter with God's grace. As a result of an encounter with God's grace. That what he is coming to do is not only to reconcile sinners to God. How he's going to do that is by proclaiming liberty, forgiving sins, by restoring sight to the blind, bringing salvation. And then he goes on to say, liberty to those who are oppressed. That's not just the marginalized. That's also those who can be demonically oppressed. That he will release them from that. We're going to talk more about these three things in just a moment. But restoration and reconciliation begins with the wrath of God being satisfied on our behalf by Jesus. I'll say it one more time. 
restoration and reconciliation begins with the wrath of God being satisfied on our behalf by Jesus. When we're looking at the forgiveness of sins, when we're looking at salvation, when we're looking at uh, being released from oppression, you've got to understand that the road to restoration begins with repentance. The road to restoration begins with repentance. Because if we're looking at these three things, what these three things are first teaching us, or what they're primarily teaching us, is that once again, God came to reconcile sinners to to himself. Which means a lot. One of the things it means is that when we sin, we don't primarily sin against one another first. We actually sin against God first. And that if we are going to have a shot at reconciliation, then our relationship must be restored with God. And that is exactly what Jesus does in him coming to earth. That his death on the cross satisfies the wrath of God so that sinners would have access to the Father. We need to first have our relationship with God restored. It can only be restored through the shedding of blood. And it is accomplished through the person and work of Jesus. Once we get that, then we have an opportunity to reconcile with one another then we have an opportunity to reconcile with one another. We first must be reconciled and restored to God through Jesus if we're going to have a shot at reconciling with one another. In addition to that, what those three things teaches us is a lot of them are momentary, right? Like, man, the forgiveness of sins, man, you're affected by that. Or, man, if you can think back to the time you became a Christian, you think through it and all these things were going on and you were figuring things out and and there were these moments where, man, the Holy Spirit was just revealing a ton of things to you or maybe you were released from a bunch of things. What happens when it's like six months or six years down the line and it's like Monday? What are you doing Monday at at like 3.15? When there's nothing special about the day, Right? There's that man, the Holy Spirit hasn't been like, pow, revealed himself to you in your word. You're just in faith, reading God's word, standing firm in what you know to be true, and then leaving space for the Spirit to reveal himself and make himself known. These aren't just momentary events. I mean, they are in terms of what Jesus does. But in addition to that, these are things that we stand firm on. These are things that we stand firm on on Mondays. These are things that we stand firm on, you know, Thursdays. Stand firm in faith through God's word. Let's keep going. The third and final question is, so why does this matter? Why does all of this matter? The first reason, the first reason is because Jesus intervenes in what's going on. I want you to notice one thing. In Isaiah 61, let's go back up to it briefly. In Isaiah 61, the last part of it, he goes on to say, to proclaim the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. And then when you go to Luke 4, Jesus doesn't talk about vengeance or the day of vengeance. Now, 
I want to be clear about a couple of things. Jesus doesn't talk about the day of vengeance. That is not to say that God's vengeance isn't coming. It is. But the purpose of Christ, the Messiah, is not to bring condemnation, but salvation. That the time is now that that Christ enters into human history to restore things, to reconcile man to God. And it provides this opportunity to repent now. Not tomorrow, not later, not let me think about it, but to repent now. That is his coming. That is the whole purpose of him diving into human history, getting dirty, living the sinless life, dying a sinner's death, and satisfying the wrath of God on our behalf so that we might repent now. That's the whole point of him saying, I have fulfilled this. I'm here. And I want you to listen to the apostle Paul. He says this. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2. Uh, he's quoting another section in Isaiah, and then he comes in and reinforces it. He says, for he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you, and in a day of salvation, I have helped you. And this is Paul reinforcing it. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. There is this urgency that is coming. Much like the people in Isaiah's time where the message is falling on deaf ears, the same thing is happening again in Luke 4. The same thing happens in Luke 4. Later on in Luke 4, in that same section, we go on to see that they marveled at his words and at his gracious teaching, and then they go back and say, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't... uh, didn't I go to school with that guy? Right? Like we graduated. And I'm still carpenting. And this dude, he just said he's, he's the one that Isaiah is talking about. Here, here, here's the point. See, for the Christian, whether it's, 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 it's Israel and Isaiah or, or the people in the synagogue that Jesus is preaching, preaching to, for the Christian, many of you are like the people in the synagogue. You're intellectually impressed. That's what they were. They marveled at, uh, Luke, 4, uh, Luke writes that they marveled at his words and his gracious teaching. That might be you. I'm not saying you're marveling at me. That's not at all what I'm saying. But you might affirm a good preacher. You may affirm a good sermon. That was a good word. Where's lunch? Right? But here's the thing. You're intellectually impressed, but you are spiritually unmoved. And the reason you are spiritually unmoved is because the good news that Jesus satisfied God's wrath on your behalf has become old news. And if it has become goal, excuse me, if it has become old news, then you lack the understanding of grace and repentance. So my exhortation to you, Christian, would be to check the condition of your heart. This truth that Jesus fulfills God's promises by proclaiming to those who are poor and releasing people from captivity to their sin should move you to worship, should move you to praise and worship God. It should move you to repentance. It should never be old news. 
The fact that God died on your behalf should never be a snoozer. Yet some of you are like those in the synagogue, spiritually unmoved. And I would ask if you really understand grace and repentance. This truth should move us to worship him. And for the non-Christian, if you don't know Jesus, you too are also like the people in the synagogue. Perhaps you're unimpressed by Jesus. Perhaps you're waiting for something else. Another, another Savior. Let me, let me just be as candid as I can. That when he talks about uh, restoring sight to the blind, it's not just physical, but it's also spiritually. In other words, that when we don't know who Jesus is, we are blind because of the gods that we serve. And you may not know your need for Jesus because your heart is being ruled by other gods. I promise you, everyone worships something. Everyone worships something. And so God, not only making himself known to man, but also in his grace, has the power to break that, to restore sight to the blind. And so what that means is that Jesus invites you to come to him. Jesus invites you to come to him, and he will give you rest. He will give you restoration. He will give you redemption. The time for repentance and salvation is now. It's right now. Your circumstance may not change. I got no promises for that. But your perspective will. Because now your motivation is completely different. Because your heart has been renewed. That is the idea behind this. So man, are are you spiritually poor? Are you spiritually poor? Are you enslaved to your sin? Man, are, are, are you just broken? Jesus has come for you. Jesus has come for you. And you can come to know him, and you can come to rejoice and worship him, because the road to restoration begins with repentance. Repentance is being broken before a holy God and coming to understand that His grace is our only option. His grace is our only option. Yeah, it's paved with tears. Yes, there's hardship. Yes, there are difficult seasons. Restoration, however, begins with repentance. Let's pray. God, we thank you for being we thank you for being a loving God. God, we thank you for being a gracious God. God, we thank you for being a missional God and a God who uh, was sent to save sinners. To save sinners just like us. 
Father, that's something that we consistently overlook. Perhaps because we think we've arrived. Perhaps we think that uh, our morality and our self-righteousness is sufficient, uh, perhaps even more sufficient than Christ's work on the cross. God, would you forgive us of our pride and our arrogance? Would you forgive us of our sin? God, would you forgive us uh, in light of our eyes consistently being taken off of you and always thinking that the problem is someone else, that the problem is other people? When in reality, the problem is the condition of our hearts and whether or not we are aligned with you first. So Holy Spirit, I pray that you would do a work in us right now. That you would challenge, that you would convict, and that you would change hearts right now. That hearts would, man, gaze their eyes upon Jesus. That hearts would be broken. That hearts would be broken in light of the grace that you're extending right now. May Jesus as, may Jesus' work, may Jesus' life, death, and resurrection be the ground upon which we stand. May that be the cry of our reminder of redemption. And may we make much of him in light of that. May we not forget that, even on those mundane days. God, as we transition into a time of giving. This is, where, this is where we give you our stuff. This is where we're not tied to our stuff, but instead our generosity, our standard of generosity is Jesus on the cross, where you sent your son and you gave everything for the sake of saving sinners. May we be just as generous with our finances. May we give cheerfully and faithfully for the glory of your name and for the advancing of your kingdom. God, we thank you for this opportunity to worship you today. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.